Tonight we're turning in our Bibles to the beginning of the Bible, very near at least, to Genesis chapter 3. I'm going to read a question and answer from the Westminster Shorter Catechism. No surprise to you, we've been using this to sort of guide our sermons in the evening to cover basic truths in the Christian life. And tonight, the question and answer is question 15. I'm going to read it for you, and then I'll explain to you, because it uses some of archaic language. The question is, what was the sin whereby our first parents fell from the estate wherein they were created? By estate, it just means the position. So they were created in a position of righteousness and holiness, perfection. There was nothing wrong in them. There was nothing wrong in the world. And so logically, the question is, well, what happened Right? How did sin enter the world? And the answer is, the sin whereby our first parents fell from that estate or position wherein they were created was their eating a forbidden fruit. So tonight I want to read that account from Genesis chapter 1, and then we'll talk a bit about what it means for us to, as a human race, have rebelled against God in this eating of the fruit So it's Genesis chapter 1, I'll be reading the first 19 verses, hear the word of God. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said... You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise... She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel." To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, and pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. 
Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. To give you just a sense of what I'll be focusing on, if you look at the end of verse 4 into verse 5, you have the words that the serpent said to the woman, you shall not die, you shall not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You may wonder if you've never been to an examination of a potential pastor, I will tell you what it's like to be on this side of that examination, and in a word, terrifying. (laughs) Because literally anything can be asked. And I remember one particular question that was asked to me when I was being examined uh, for ordination. The man who was doing the examination said, and can you tell us what you know about the devil? I'm sure I had some sort of answer, (laughs) but I don't remember what I said. I think in retrospect, my answer probably was not adequate because I hadn't given it a ton of thought. I'll ask you the same thing tonight, not because you're examined at this point to be a pastor, but because we do confess that in this world there are two great forces that are battling good and evil, and the one who is called the devil or Satan is the leader of that which is evil. How much do you know about him? I'm asking that question because in this passage, the evil one plays a very prominent role. This is the historical account of where evil came into the world that we all experience. And tonight I want to show you, based on the way the devil deceives Adam and Eve, how that deception continues to affect the way that we view the nature of sin. What is sin like? We can learn a great deal by watching the way or listening to the way that the evil one deceived Adam and Eve. I'm going to put it this way, and then I'll explain to you why I'm saying that. What I'm going to say is this passage shows us a great deal about pride. That really, one of my children, after we read, we always read, I should say, the passage, if I'm going to preach, we read that passage at lunch. And so one of them asks me, and this is always kind of a trip-up question for me, well, when did evil enter into God's created universe? Well, we know when it entered into this world. The question is, when did the evil one fall? When did he rebel against the Lord? We have less historical information about that. But we know that he brought evil into this created reality, into the world we live, in this account. And the way he does so is by preying on our sense of self-importance. What I'm going to summarize is pride. Pride doubts the clarity of God's commands. That's what I'm going to say. When we begin looking at the serpent's words, I think we should note something that is quite important before I look at those words specifically. This may be, of course, a historical account. It actually happened. But don't miss in the history the fact that what we're talking about here goes beyond the fruit that they ate to what was in their heart, what was going on there. 
The words that the evil one spoke to Adam and Eve were words that they believed. It was not simply that they ate. It was the reason why they ate. And what they were doing when they ate, and listen to this, is that Adam and Eve decided to become judges of what God had said. They determined whether or not what God said was true based on their own analysis. So it's like this. God's words were here. Adam and Eve's evaluation were here, was here, and they submitted God's word to their own evaluation. Not that hard to conceive of. Your child comes in and they have some grand story to tell about why their brothers or sisters, uh, I was going to say roller skates, nobody rides roller skates anymore, their their ripstick Their ripstick is broken in the driveway. They've got some story to tell. And when you listen to the story, you think, eh, I don't know. Well, that's sort of what Adam and Eve are doing here with God's Word. They're saying, we're going to evaluate for ourselves. We need to know for ourselves. We are in a position of deciding whether or not God's Word is to be believed. And it is in that context that we hear the devil's words in verses 4 and 5. There are two things the evil one says to Adam and Eve. Each one is appealing in its own way to what I'm describing as pride. The first thing that the devil does at the end of verse 4 is manipulate the clear command of God. You can read that. I did before, but I'm going to say it again. He said to the woman, you shall not surely die. (laughs) You think to yourself, that's about as obvious as you can hear. Back in chapter 2, verse 17, God said to Adam and Eve, here is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. That's what God said in chapter 2, verse 17. Now, the devil is saying here in our text, you shall not surely die. You can imagine all the trees that were in the Garden of Eden. I don't know how many of them there were, but there was certainly more than this one. There may have been hundreds or even thousands of them. Trees that they were free to eat of. They were probably trees that looked a lot like this one, the tree of knowledge and good, uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Likely the only difference between this tree and the other trees was that God had said about this tree, you may not eat of it. This is the one, not this one. All the rest of them, feel free to eat to your heart's content, just not this one. And now the devil comes to them, and he says, but listen, when God said not to eat of it, here's the thing, you will surely not die. You surely will not die. That's what I'm telling you. God said one thing, but here's here's my version of it. There's something very tricky in what the devil says. Both in the ESV as well as the original, it's a little hard to understand exactly what he means to say. There are two options. Let me see if I can explain them to you. Does the devil mean to say first to Adam and Eve, you will surely not die? In other words, God said you will die. I'm saying to you, that's not the case. It's the opposite. It's most certainly the case you will not die if you eat from this tree. Or is the devil saying... It is not sure if you will die if you eat from this tree. 
There's a possibility you might die. There's a possibility you might not die. Either way, it's uncertain. Perhaps it is difficult for you to think of the difference between the two. It's a slight variation. And I think the reason the evil one puts his interpretation or his spin on what God said in chapter 2, verse 17, the reason he puts his spin on it in this way is because he is intentionally bringing uncertainty to the way that Adam and Eve understood what God had said. He means to inject ambiguity. Something that would have seemed so obvious, any other tree go ahead and eat it, not this one. The devil says, well, is it really certain whether or not you're going to die if you eat of it? Or, I know that if you eat of it, you won't die. I know that. So just go ahead. Go ahead and eat of it. Let me give you an example of how (laughs) this kind of ambiguity works. You may have your own routine, if you live with others, about how you check the mailbox each day. So it's usually my thing to do. I drive home after work. I pull up to, up to our mailbox. I open it up. I empty it. Bring it into the house with me. Now imagine one day my wife says to me, will you go out and check the mailbox? It's Saturday. I didn't come to work. She says, would you mind go out, go, going out there and check the mailbox? So because it's cold, I put on my shoes, I put on my coat, I put on my hat, I put on my gloves. I walk out to the mailbox and then come back empty-handed. My wife asked me, was the mailbox empty? I said, no, there was mail in it. She said, then why don't you bring back the mail? And I say, you asked me to check the mail, not to bring it back. You notice the ambiguity. Something that would have appeared very clear can be twisted to become less clear. And what is happening in the moment when Adam and Eve listen to the evil one is the same thing. They hear his words and they begin to doubt whether or not God's word was absolutely clear. They found in the devil's words, you might say, a little margin for their own self-interest, their own selfishness. And instead of taking a command that was plain and straightforward and obeying it in a plain and straightforward way, they listen to a version of that command and that makes it far less certain, more open, easier to manipulate. To put it in a word, here's the first thing I want you to hear. They massage the commandment of God. When you read this, you might think, well, (laughs) what are you going to tell us, Pastor? We're not supposed to do that? Well, yes. But I want to show you how easy that is to do in our own lives. Before we fall into some self-righteous condemnation of Adam and Eve, let me show you how this appeals to every one of our hearts. Have you ever taken a clear commandment of God and massaged it to leave room for your own desires? Here I'm going to say something that's a little difficult to hear, but I hope you can hear it in the way in which I intend to say it. Not that long ago, I was sitting around with a group of people, and the previous time, when we were, well, this is my life group. I mean, I can't really just pretend like that's not what happened. This is. The time before, the phone had rang, rung right in the middle of our life group meeting, and I'd ignored it, of course, 
but very curious about who was calling. It happened to be a friend, and he was calling because my son had agreed to do some breaks for his, his van, and his wife was worried whether or not my son knew what he was doing. So she called. In fact, he called on the phone to ask. So I called him back. I said, what's going on? He said, uh, my wife wants to know if your son knows what he's doing. So that previous time we met, after I hung up the phone, I said, well, this is what happened. There were some members of our group who were not there on that occasion. So we met again. I thought that was a funny story. Everybody laughed. Let me tell it again. And I did. And I told it, not intending to honor my friend's wife, but because I thought the members of my group would find it amusing. You know, Paul says to only speak what is upbuilding and honoring, not to gossip. But can you see how something like that that seems so small, in my mind I created margin. It was easy to massage that a little bit, to think to myself, it's really not that bad, it's not that big a deal. In fact, I ran a little exercise, this is the way our life group works, I'm going to hang my head as I say this. We ran on the circle and I asked every one of them, was that gossiping? And it didn't take long before there was a unanimous agreement, it was. You see, it was easy for everyone else to spot. We think we're so clever. We've created this margin, and everyone else should just recognize that the clear commandment of God in this case doesn't quite apply, when in fact it does. And in the same way, I'm suggesting to you this nature of sin, that we take the clear commandments of God And we massage them, we create margin in them in order to do what is wrong. It wasn't just an Adam and Eve thing. But that desire to take those commandments and twist them slightly, just a few degrees off course, in order for us to get what we want. Yeah, that's what sin means. As it entered into our world... Are you inclined to let the devil take the clear commands of God and massage him in such a way that it fits your sinful desires? That's the first thing the evil one does at the end of verse 4. Here's the second thing. In verse 5, the evil one says, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Here's the second way the evil one tempts Adam and Eve. Again, this is not just about eating a fruit. If you like to think of it an apple, you can. We don't know if it was. It wasn't just the act of eating the fruit. It was what was going on in their heart that caused them, that led them to think in their mind, this is the thing I ought to do. I ought to eat of the thing that God said no. And again, the evil one comes and takes the word of God, clear word of God, and he twists it slightly so that Adam and Eve think, wait a minute, there's room here for what I want to do. But he goes one step further in verse 5. The evil one is crafty. And if Adam and Eve had not been willing to listen to the evil one, the plot had failed. It would have failed. But now he prays in the most devious way 
on the desire in the heart of Adam and Eve for self-determination. He asks them this question. The devil says, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You might say, Pastor, that's not a question. It's a statement. Oh, it bears a question. The question is, isn't that what you want? Isn't that what you desire? On the one hand, what the devil says is not surprising after all. The tree called the knowledge of good and evil was the knowledge of good and evil. So to eat of it would have brought an understanding of good and evil. But there are two things that are dreadfully wrong with what the devil is suggesting to Adam and Eve, the question he is asking them to answer. First, the th- First, he begins by telling Adam and Eve that he knows what is in the mind of God, something beyond what God had told them. He says, God knows that if Adam and Eve, the two of you, eat from the tree, then something will happen to you that God has kept for himself. And not only has he kept this knowledge of good and evil for himself, he has done so in a way that is a disservice to you. Do you hear what the devil is doing? It is so incredibly devious. The devil is telling Adam and Eve that God, do you hear this? That God himself is selfish. That God is selfish. That the reason that God prevents them from eating from this tree is that he doesn't have their best in mind. Oh, Adam and Eve, don't you want the very best out of life? Those things that are really great, here it is, knowledge of good and evil, and God, God, is keeping this all for himself. I hate to make it sound trivial, but it reminds me of what happens when a child, for example, has candy. He's like, oh, I get it all. This is the most sinister of all the devil's plots. He's praying in Adam and Eve's selfishness by telling them that God is selfish that he does not have their best interest in mind, that he keeps all the good things for himself and is not willing to care for them as they deserve. Again, I want to suggest to you tonight that we should not too quickly say to Adam and Eve they were foolish in falling for the devil's plot. Is it not true that we often say in our own hearts that God is not giving us everything we really deserve? That we deserve better, more, And that God is keeping away from us something that we really need and desire. Again, I'm going to tell you about an unnamed man many years ago who was struggling to follow Christ. He was raised, he sat in a Christian home, which meant to him, it was a home that was very moral. Some things were right and some things were wrong. I would not say, and he wouldn't say either, he was a home founded on Christ. It was a home founded on good behavior. Do the right thing. That was the creed of the home. Do the right thing. And so this young man grew up, and when he grew up, he thought to himself, I no longer live at home. I wonder why my parents didn't want me to do those things. Maybe they were just not aware of what those things were. In his mind, he thought the God that his parents talked about was simply, as they used to say when I was young, a killjoy. God doesn't want us to have fun. God is the one who keeps us from all those things that would make my life great. And so this young man went out and literally 
like Solomon and Ecclesiastes, did all the things that his heart desired, whatever it was. If he was money, he pursued money. If he was pleasure, he pursued pleasure. If he was alcohol, he pursued alcohol. If it was women, he pursued women. And he did all of that until by the time I met him, he was in deep trouble. In fact, he was in prison. Because he had not only gone astray of God's law, he had gone astray of the laws of the state of Iowa as well. Is there a part of you tonight that wonders the same thing? Is God keeping from me that which would make me happy? You might not be in the same phase as this young man, or maybe you are. And you're having to sort out for yourself, what is it? What is it that I ought to pursue? Or maybe you're a bit older and you've realized you can't really do everything that you want, but there is still that little temptation, that pride that is praying in your heart in the same way. And the way it shows up is in a begrudging attitude toward God. Why won't God give me what I want? No, really, why doesn't God give me what I deserve? The pride is simply this, God is not good. Because if he was good, he would just give me what I want. The other thing that the devil suggests in verse 5 is that knowing good and evil, I hate to even say this because it is so horrible. He suggests in verse 5 that knowing good and evil will be good for Adam and Eve. Imagine for just a moment the worst thing that you've ever seen. The worst thing you've ever experienced. I'm going to use something that's a little bit detached from my own life. It's really something I've seen more than experienced. Maybe the experience is too much to, to talk about, but maybe watching something or seeing something's a bit easier. My wife and I have watched movies in the past about World War II, especially the liberation of prison camps. And when you watch the pictures, you see the pictures in the film of some of those being liberated, you think, what unspeakable horrors that men and women, most of whom did not live, but those who did, what they lived through before they were released, so thin thin and emaciated they could hardly move, having diseases the world had not known since the Middle Ages, These are people subjected to this by other human beings. Terrible, horrible things. Is my life better off because such evil is something that I know? (laughs) That's the argument the evil one is making. Your life will be better off if you will know evil. It's a horrible thing to say, but that's exactly what he is saying. Would our world, is our world better off because there were concentration camps? Is our world better off because there is evil, abuse, neglects, there's harm in our world that is beyond really the ability of the mind to believe? Is the world better off because we know evil? How in the world could anyone say that? But that's the argument the devil is making. And it appeals so specifically to the desire we have to be in the place of God that Adam and Eve say, yes, I want that knowledge. He is suggesting we are better off when we do not have what God gives 
but what we believe we ought to possess instead. It preys on our sense that God is less, that his gifts are less and inferior and harmful, and what we want for ourselves is good and better. He is saying that life is what it ought to be if Adam and Eve, this is the argument, our lives are better if we're in the place of God. In fact, the world is better when God is not alone on the throne. No, things are improved when I am on the throne as God is subject to my desires. That's the argument the evil one is making. I hope as I've explained that to you tonight, you can see not just what the evil one did in the Garden of Eden many years ago, but the way in which that nature of that selfishness, that pride that led to the original rebellion persists today. Because it continues to. Be honest. That's what John says. If you say that you're not a sinner, you deceive yourself and the truth is not in you. Which sort of leaves us with this. And I don't want to just sort of tack this on to the end because it's really the rest of what happens after Genesis 3. <laughs> it's most of the story. But because we start in the garden in Genesis 3 with this rebellion, and then the story of God's redemptive purposes comes after that against that setting within that context, it's very necessary for me to explain how it is that those who have that kind of pride and rebellion can once again be at peace with God? The answer is, as God will say later in this same chapter, God would send His Son into the world in order to destroy the power of evil. That's the simple answer. Let me show you the more nuanced answer. He does that with sincerity. Unlike humanity that's looking for a way to manipulate God's commands to find an opening for us to do it our own way, Jesus said, very simply, my food is to do the will of my Father who sent me and to accomplish His purposes. That's all Jesus ever did. We read that this morning from John chapter 5. I only do what my Father tells me. We're the same. We're on the same page. Jesus was not looking for margin, manipulation. He wasn't looking to massage the commandments of God. He was wholeheartedly in obedience to His Father. Why? Because you're not. And when you're honest with your own heart and you say, I tend to try to find a way out and fool everybody into thinking I'm really doing okay, God's not fooled. And because he's honest about our sin, he also sent his son into the world, a perfectly obedient son, so that you, through faith in him, can have a righteousness that is perfect. Jesus did not see the commandments of God to be avoided, to be lived on the edge of, the sort of manipulative possible. He believed the word of God fully and obeyed the commandments of God. The other thing that I want to direct your attention to goes at the very heart of the way in which the evil one preyed on Adam and Eve. It is that sense 
that Adam and Eve believed, as most human beings do, that we're better off if we could do it our own way. And this perfectly obedient Savior, this second Adam, speaks in Matthew chapter 16, familiar words perhaps to many of us, where it says, And Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now, maybe you've never thought of that as a reversal, a call to the reversal of what happened in the Garden of Eden. Not to exalt yourself, but to deny yourself. Not to seek your own pleasure, but to do what God calls you to, even in suffering. Not to abandon God, but to follow Him. Jesus is saying, if you will believe in me and follow me, you will undo, that is, you will walk in the undoing of what happened in the garden. He says, for whoever would save his life, if I could just cap, encapsulate this whole sermon, I would put it this way, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden sought to save their lives. You say, but their lives weren't lost. Oh, but they believed their lives would be better if they did what they believed rather than what God said. That's a sort of saving I need to preserve something good. I need to have it on my own. And Jesus says, whoever would save his life, what do we have to do instead? Do you know the answer? Whoever would save his life must lose it. But whoever will lose his life for my sake will find it. That is the great gospel undoing of the fall in the Garden of Eden. Not to say to our God, I will do it my own way, thank you so much, why can't I have what I want? But to say, I will receive from my Savior His perfect obedience, and I'm willing to give up myself in every respect, deny myself, in order to follow my Savior. And here's the wonderful thing. Jesus follows it by saying, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits its soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is coming with his angels in the glory of his Father, and he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death, and still they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. The glory that God has for you, my friend, is more, I know this would be hard to believe, the glory that God has for you is more than what your heart imagines. It is. His love for you is greater than the love you have for yourself. And when the pride, the desire for us, for me grabbing onto, I need it, I have to hold on to it. If I don't take it for myself, no one will give me what I need and deserve. Is essentially the lie of the evil one in Genesis chapter 3. God can give you exactly what you need in exactly the right time in a way that is beyond the imagination of our, he- of our, of our minds and meets exactly the needs of our hearts. And he does so in Jesus Christ. Would you join me in prayer? Father, in this true story, in the book of Genesis, the rebellion that Adam and Eve undertook against their God was 
in their own minds, in their own self-interest. It was better for them. And Lord, we confess tonight that often the decisions we make are for the same reason. We believe they are in our self-interest. But Jesus says to deny ourselves, to take up our cross and follow Him, to follow Him into the way of the kingdom. It requires us to give up ourselves and to believe that God's care for us is better. It is more wonderful. It is exactly what we need. We pray that you would keep the lies that the evil one speaks into our hearts, that you would keep those lies from penetrating deep within those hearts. Instead, you would root them out, perhaps in somewhat painful ways at times, root them out, pluck them out, that we would see life in Christ is what it means to be human in order to, in order to live in a way that anticipates our glorious future. Lord, we pray that you would not let our minds simply skip over this lightly. Instead, that we would wrestle deeply with this until we come to see that Jesus' glorious promise, that we're called to walk after Him, that He will provide for us, is exactly what our souls need. Father, hear this then in Jesus' name. Amen.